Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. So there's a lot of talk about dumping Trump as his poll numbers continue to, well, underperform, shall we say. But is that even a practical reality? Our good friend Michael Warren, the uh, online editor of the Weekly Standard, has been digging into that, and he's got the facts for us. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Michael. So is this just some kind of a fetid anti-Trump fantasy, or is it actually possible for a political party at this point in the American process to make a change at the top of the ticket? Well, I think it's both, actually. Uh, <laughs> it, it is it is both a complete fantasy, something that is uh, completely impractical and almost certainly won't happen, uh, but it's also something that is possible for the Republican Party to do under its current rules. Uh, basically, there are no rules when it comes to what the party is able to do with respect to its nominee. The RNC, the Republican National Committee, sets its own rules. It basically has something set up for if a nominee for president dies or is somehow, uh, so in some other way, incapacitated uh, uh, for nominating somebody new. And it basically requires them to do, the delegates, to do what they did in Cleveland. Uh, they could do it remotely even. They could gather around at some other place somewhere, probably a lot less theatrical, and have another vote and choose somebody else. The The question about replacing Donald Trump while he is still with us, um, while he is uh, maybe uh, under uh, doing so under duress, uh, that's a trickier question, but but basically the Republican Party uh, could decide to do it. Uh, there are so there's some, basically some wiggle room within the Republican Party rules that allow them to do it. The 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 questions are are twofold really. Uh, how does it actually work in practical purposes in terms of getting the uh, uh, the new candidate's name on the ballots in all these states? Uh, and and subsequently uh, getting that name into uh, the onto the electoral college ballots, and then from a political perspective, obviously, what happens when you depose the uh, rightfully nominated uh, nominee of your party? Those are two questions that would have to be grappled with in the very uh, unlikely at this point unlikely scenario that uh, the Republican Party actually moves forward on it. Well, uh, let's set aside the question of whether the GOP should dump their nominee and just go back to the me mechanical issue. What, is it a deal where someone would have to say, I move that we remove the nomination from Donald Trump? It has to be second. Is it one of those school government you know, <laughs> vote things? Or would it be something that, say, uh, Reince Priebus or party leaders could begin the process themselves and then invite the delegates to either support it or reject it? Uh it really is wide open, Michael. I think it, it, anything could happen. It, essentially, uh, the rules are written. Um, uh, it's kind of like uh, kind of like monopoly money of rules. You know, that kind of doesn't mean anything. You can kind of do whatever you want. Um, but the, but the, the 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 real issue is, does it have the support of the uh, of the members of the Republican National Committee and and the delegates? And and so you know. Uh, I, I guess anybody could suggest something, but they would have to have some kind of political backing within the RNC uh, to really move forward on it. And, and so anything goes. And then there's the question, Michael, are real people talking about doing this or is this just something that bored op-ed writers who have to meet a deadline are noodling around about in order to fill space in the paper? Are you suggesting that bored op-ed writers are not real people? 
because I would uh, I'd actually probably agree with you on that. Uh, no, I mean there are there's a few activist groups out there. There was that group that was trying to uh, free the delegates that were, they called themselves free the delegates at the RNC who uh, who are trying to sort of uh, encourage the RNC to do that. Uh, I think it will be about as successful as their attempt to free the delegates at the convention in Cleveland was. Um, and, and then there are uh, some efforts, this, this new independent conservative candidate, Evan uh, McMullen, his campaign has released a memo on Wednesday suggesting basically at the, at the, as the sort of a last ditch effort that if the party were uh, able to do this and decided to do this, if Donald Trump's com uh, numbers completely cratered and and uh, and the, the party decided to get rid of uh, of Donald Trump, that uh, that Evan McMullen and his sort of nascent campaign would 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 fill the gap. But nobody's sort of actively trying to do this. It would have to be a movement within the RNC, and um, and and there's been no indication, at least at this point, that anybody. Uh, including all, all the way up to Ryan's Priebus has any stomach for that within the RNC. Uh, the last question before we move on to our uh, next guest, the uh, I, I've specifically tried to avoid the political question of whether the Republican Party should. That's an all opinion. We've, we're talking here specifically about the process, and so it is possible but unlikely. Let me ask you, based on the conversations you've had with Republicans, both office holders and activists. What are the kind of numbers that it would take for this to go from being a, you know, weekly standard fueled fantasy to an actual movement? I want to give you two numbers. There's a new poll out this week. One in five Republicans say they want the party to dump Donald Trump. And then the second number is when you look at how the prospects for the U.S. Senate and House are looking, should Trump continue to poll this level? I think it's safe to say five out of five Office holders in Washington want them to make this decision. Is there a magic number, kind of a gag reflex, where even people who hate this idea go, oh, we, we, we have to do it as much as we don't want. We have to do something about Trump at the top of the ticket. I don't think so. I think the, the, the timing of everything here has made that kind of impossible. Look, political folks... Uh, are, are definitely uh, uh, victims to inertia. And the thing is moving, the train is going, uh, it may be clunking along and almost out of gas, but they're going to just uh, keep pushing as long as they can. Uh, because the other options here, the option that we've been talking about is so far out of the realm of their own uh, ability to, to kind of uh, understand and, and grok that uh, there's just not the kind of... Um, there's too much institutional inertia is, is how I'll say that. And, and I think what you're more likely to see and what you're already starting to see uh, from, at a candidate level, and I think you'll start to see it from an institutional level, is is more that the, the party will simply move on from the presidential race uh, if this trend continues for Donald Trump, where he continues to sit at 37 percent, 38, 39 percent in national polls. He's having to contest States like Utah and possibly Georgia and other red states that uh, – and, and as other states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, states that a Republican really would have to win to win the White House. As those become farther and farther out of reach for Donald Trump, there's going to be an effort to sort of redirect uh, uh, resources, redirect efforts and energies toward saving the governor's seats, saving the Senate seats and, and uh, vulnerable House seats um, as much as they can. There, there is an argument to be made 
very strong argument that having Donald Trump at the top of the ticket is what is causing the problem uh, for so many of these uh, uh, Senate and House races and, and that uh, as long as he's up there, there's not much you can do. There's there's something you can do uh, if you're, you know, to sort of run against Donald Trump as a Republican. Uh, uh, but unless things got really, really, really bad, uh, and I think we haven't even seen how bad they really could get, um, then uh, I think that the that institutional inertia is is what's going to keep Donald Trump in place. The question is, how far does Reince go? How far does the RNC go in supporting him? Or or when do they kind of uh, pull the ripcord and say, uh, see you, Donald, we're out of here? So that's how the rules look. But what does it look like? When a major party decides to dump someone from the top of their ticket, Philip Terzian, the literary editor at the Weekly Stand, was actually in the room when this happened once before. Philip, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. So who got dumped when and what were you doing backstage? Well, it was uh, July of 1972. Uh, George McGovern was nominated by the Democrats for the presidency. And after asking a long list of people to be his running mate, he finally got a yes from Senator Thomas Eagleton of Missouri. And almost instantly after Eagleton was anointed, um, word leaked out that uh, during the 1960s, he had suffered from depression and had sought hospitalization and had undergone electroshock therapy. Now, I don't know whether that would be a disqualifier nowadays. Might not be. Uh, I personally think Trump's numbers would go up five points if he promised to get (laughs) electroshock therapy while in the White House. But I'm sorry, I interrupted. Please. Well, no. At the time, it was regarded as as essentially a disqualifier. And also, um, there was anger in the Democratic Party for two reasons. One was they knew that the election was a long shot and this was probably the end. Secondly, they were annoyed with Eagleton, who in those days, the vetting process was not very complicated and he clearly had not told them about this. So uh, you had a personal encounter while this was going on, is that right? Well, in two ways. I had been a uh, a writer for the uh, Democratic Platform Committee that summer, and I was also a stringer for a couple of newspapers uh, uh, when the uh, Democrats decided to, uh, after Eagleton left the ticket, they anointed someone else to replace him on the ticket, but he just couldn't be done by by a fiat, you had to reassemble the Democratic National Committee, which was to say all the all the national committee members around the country, not not the delegates to the national convention. And, and that's important. I want to make sure I understand that they were able to change literally the top of the ticket by changing the vice president just with those national committee men. Every state on the GOP side, for example, I know the Democrats has three from each state, and so. In 1972, the Democrats were able to make this major decision without going back to all the delegates, just the leadership of the party, essentially, if you will. That's correct. I mean, obviously, McGovern and company had made the decision who they were going to recruit, but it was was certainly an acceptable choice. It was Sergeant Shriver. But they felt they had to formally reassemble the DNC to ratify the choice and also, you know, give them a a second chance (laughs) at reintroducing themselves, as it were. So you were in the room? I was in the room. It was actually in Washington. It was at a ballroom uh, at the what was then called the Sheraton Park Hotel, now, now the Wardman Park Hotel, still around. And it was interesting to me for two reasons. Uh, one is that um, it was the first inkling I had of how television had taken over the, the process of covering politics because the room was much smaller than the convention hall in Miami Beach, where McGovern had been nominated. 
and the floor was just carpeted with cables. There were cameras. I was constantly being told to either shut up because they were interviewing somebody or would you please move aside, sir, because they wanted to get a <laughs> shot of somebody. And, and I felt that I had as much right to be in the sure. room as they had. Um, but I, I could see who was running the show at that point. I had an interesting experience, which is now probably absolutely impossible. Of course, in those days, mere presidential candidates weren't, weren't protected by the Secret Service. And so there was no Secret Service around the uh, Sheraton Park. And in theory, anyone, frankly, could have walked in off the street and walked in. Um, I, as I can't recall now whether I had a credential of some sort, but right. I did have a press pass. Anyhow, um, I can't remember now who or what I was looking for, but I was looking for someone, and I wandered backstage. This was about an hour before the big ceremony. And I was wandering up and down a couple of corridors in the hotel, and I turned a corner, and suddenly I realized I was alone in the hotel corridor with Thomas Eagleton, the man who was leaving the ticket in great humiliation. And he was pacing up and down the hallway very rapidly. His, I can always remember he was clenching and unclenching his fists and kind of mumbling to himself and looking slightly, uh, I don't want to say crazed. Disheveled his, uh, or Well, he didn't look disheveled. He was in his gray suit, okay. uh, buttoned in the middle. He looked like a senator, but he looked uh, in a kind of frenzy. And I, at the time, I thought, oh, my God, I'm witnessing the reason why he had to leave the ticket. <laughs> Uh, in retrospect, I now realize he was probably memorizing the sure. remarks he was about to make in another 45 minutes or so. So he saw me. I know he saw me, but but being a good U.S. senator, he didn't. He right. saw me without acknowledging me, and I was sort of embarrassed. So I quickly uh, uh, skedaddled aside. The mood of the Democrats. You mentioned two things. One is seeing the election as a long shot. Some people would argue that Republicans are in a similar position. Uh, Donald Trump's polls are not great at the moment, and there's a lot of speculation of whether or not you can even turn that around. It, would you say there's a similar mood, or have the Republicans not gotten into the McGovern zone yet? Oh, I think they're in the McGovern zone. I mean, the science of polling was not as sophisticated as, as it is today. I mean, there were Democrats who thought that uh, George McGovern was the bee's knees, mm -hmm. and Richard Nixon was Richard Nixon, and how can we lose? Uh, and they thought that, well, it was unfortunate about Eagleton, um, but sorry, everyone loves Sergeant Shriver and, you know, all things considered and the Vietnam War is unpopular, et cetera, et cetera. We have a chance. But I think at least among the, shall we say, the older Pauls, the, the, the sort of old, old types who were being uh, very vigorously elbowed aside by the McGovernites at that time, there was a feeling that McGovern really didn't have a chance, and that even if he ever had had even a smidgen of a chance, the Eagleman episode had uh, finished that off. One last question, and this is, I know, complete you know, kind of speculation, personal observation, but you, having been there and been here now, do you see any parallels, any other parallels between the McGovern moment the Democrats were having and the, and the Republicans? Because I see a template, looking at it through history, of... Trump represents a different model for the Republican Party. You know, uh, blue-collar workers, don't worry about the college-educated workers, you, people you lose. We've got this new model. It's more populist. It's not conservative. It's, it's you know, this different model. McGovern had a new model. You know, we're really going to go to the left. You know, even as far as Nixon had gone to the left, you could argue he's one of our most liberal presidents in a lot of ways. We're going to go even farther. It was a new group of people are going to pull into the party. 
are, are those parallels legitimate, or am I just imposing you know two paragraphs of understanding from the World Atlas onto this election? No, no, I think you have a point. I mean, I mean, the McGovern people felt that the I, I can remember the phrase the black, the poor, and the young. This was remember the first year that. 18-year-olds had just right. gotten the vote, and there was this sense that there was this vast army of 18, 19, 20-year-olds out there who would, of course, vote for the Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a great statistical shock later on when they realized <laughs> the great majority of them voted for Richard exactly. Nixon. But there was that perception. And just as uh, this year and in 1964, I would remind you, there were Republicans who disassociated themselves from the candidate mm-hmm. officially. Uh, they ag- I can remember George H.W. Bush, who was then running for the Senate in Texas in 1964. He somewhat reluctantly endorsed Goldwater, and and there was a lot of eyebrows were raised about that. So, and then in in 72, of course, there were a lot of prominent Democrats. Who, you know, there was a Democrats for Nixon. Mm-hmm. I remember Franklin Roosevelt's son James headed up Democrats for Nixon wow. and. And they were quite active and, I suppose, effective in their way. So there are parallels, sure. And, of course, Scoop Jackson, a prominent hawkish Democrat of the time who only at the very end of the process, I think just days before uh, the election, came out and gave a very lukewarm endorsement because the party was breaking apart. We saw what happened with McGovern, blowout. We saw what happened with Goldwater, blowout. Do you... do the pieces seem to be lining up that way for you now, or do you think there's another trend at work that will make 2016 a surprise? Well, the, I can't answer that question because everything that seems plausible right. this year <laughs> turns out to be the opposite. <laughs> Experience would suggest that it will re- history will repeat itself, mm-hmm. but I don't want to go on the record <laughs> saying that. This is the kind of year where if the election were, uh, is over— and the person who wins suddenly pulled off one of those Mission Impossible masks, you know, and it turns out that it was somebody, you know, Richard Nixon raised from the debt. You would not be completely surprised. Not at all. Thank you for helping us understand it. We appreciate your time, Philip Terzian, with the Weekly Standard. Also, our earlier guest, Michael Warren. Also, a reminder that if you're enjoying these podcasts, they're at weeklystandard.com. Uh, on a regular basis. We also have a brand new Crystal Clear podcast with Bill Crystal uh, with our partners at podcastone.com. Be sure to check that out as well. Thanks so much for your time. I'm your host, Michael Graham.